Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining today. This episode, Prosperity of the Wicked, and we'll also be dealing with the suffering of the righteous. It's a difficult subject, and it's, well, it's, it's a, in, in our line of vision right now, as we'll soon hear in a few moments, it's been generously sponsored by my dear friends, our show members, Dan and Robin Dishi. In honor of Dan's father, whose yard site is observed today, is a very sweet Yid, a beautiful Jew who loved Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, and Hashem, Aleke Yisrael, Rachamim ben Chaim, his neshama should have an aliyah, and hopefully he will have nachas. He will derive pleasure on high from the Torah that is being studied in his honor and in his memory today. Okay, so let me begin today by recapping very briefly what we have already established and the challenge that this will pose. Rabbeinu Bachaya, over the course of two of the episodes, has illustrated for us how the challenges, the difficulties, the trials, the travails and tribulations most people experience when they try to obtain their livelihood, seeking out their daily bread or sustenance, is all orchestrated by Hashem for our benefit. With it, Hashem tests or brings forth our spiritual mettle and courage. And as a result of it, <laughs> we get too busy to sin because decadence is not really a good place for most people to be. Well, in fact, it's not a good place for anybody to be. And because we're prone to decadence and because having too much time in our hands isn't actually beneficial. Hashem loves us. He cares about us. In other words, let's make it... Uh, Let's make it simple. God does not torment us. He doesn't get his jollies out of making our lives miserable. Well, then why doesn't God make it easier for us? Why, doesn't he, why does he challenge us? This same question could be posed by a child who says, I don't understand my parents. If they love me, why do they force me to go to school when I don't want to go to school? And why do they make me do my homework? Why do they make me eat my spinach? Why won't they give me whatever I want, whenever I want it? Because after all, if they love me, they should do for me as I please. And then the child grows up and values and appreciates the discipline that his parents used in raising her or him. Because he or she understands that as a result of the discipline, as a result of the emphasis that his parents placed on industriousness and hard work and not getting things for free, they actually became a mensch. And they have a better life thanks to it. This, of course, is true in ways that are infinitely greater than we could possibly understand. Hashem wants what's best for us. He loves us. He cares about us. You matter, my friend. Every one of us matters. None can be 
smug or high and mighty about God caring about me more than you because he actually cares about all of us. We all matter to him. And as such, God has placed us exactly where we need to be, when we need to be there. He's given us precisely the amount of energy and wherewithal required. Not one ounce more, not one ounce less. And he will try us and challenge us and test us. Put us through difficult sets of circumstances so that we can rise to the occasion. And in doing so, we, <laughs> we are able to benefit. We are enriched by it. If this is new to you, if you haven't been watching, please go back and, you know, listen and watch carefully because those episodes delineate this idea, I think, in a pretty well-rounded fashion. Which brought us to the immediate past episode in which Rabbeinu Bahaya said, well, by virtue of this theology or this faith-infused perspective, a person who is entirely righteous, a person who is exceptionally committed and devoted and dedicated to Hashem, a person who toils constantly and a person who exhibits the faith and the trust that we spoke of, a person who isn't prone to decadence, a person who basically is at zero spiritual risk, but with the risk factor eliminated, then why would God challenge this person? He shouldn't. If everything we said is true, then the person who doesn't need the challenges won't get the challenges. Sounds perfect on paper <laughs> until we look outside the books. And Rabbeinu Bachaya now is forced to acknowledge and contend with the reality that oftentimes is at odds with this beautiful theology that he illustrated for us on the pages of the Shara Betochen because on the streets it doesn't always look same. And that brings us to today's episode. Prosperity of the wicked. Well, that's the way Rabbeinu Bechaya begins. If you're following along in the Kihat edition, I'd encourage you to open to page 91. The headline here is The Righteous Suffer and Wicked Prosper. Says the great Rabbeinu B'chayim, Ve'im yomar ha'omer. Now, if somebody's going to say, somebody is going to question this assertion, this faith-based perspective, and he'll say, well, Rabbi B'chayim, as you put it, everything should fit perfectly into your equation. 1 plus 1 equals 2, 10 plus 10 equals 20, etc. However, hine anachnu ro'im, and yet we see. You can't convince me otherwise. These are facts that I can see. This is observable data. We see, miktsas tzaddikim, that there are some righteous people, le'izdam and lehem, Tarpam, whose livelihoods are not easily arranged for them. 
and they're only able to obtain the sustenance they require or earn their daily bread, only after incredible volume of toil and lots of hard work. Now, if it was the case that everybody who was righteous would always have a hard time, then this would be what you call a checkmate. It's impossible to countenance what Rabbeinu Bechaya just asserted because the facts tell us a different story. Well, that in fact is not true. There are many righteous people who do actually live by the grace of God. But there are some who don't. And this equation should be ironclad. It should be like simple mathematics. If it's true that God controls everything, each and every nuance of an iota of existence is being choreographed and orchestrated by Hashem, and Hashem loves every one of us, and none of us is tormented, chas v'shalom, or tortured. But each time we're faced with a trial, a tribulation, it's because it's for our benefit. And that the reason that God provides for the millions of forms of life, millions of forms of life that inhabit this planet. There's like 60,000 forms of beetles alone. Beetles don't have to go to school to learn how to make a living. Neither do the beavers or the bears or the bulls. Everybody seems taken care of. The only species that has to toil, and this has no difference of creed, color, nationality, origin, faith system, culture, anthropology, makes no difference. It's a factoid of human reality. The human reality is we all need to toil to make a living, and there are always haves and have-nots. In every society, there are people who succeed and people who fail, people who have wealth and people who have extreme poverty. Yeah, I know, Karl Marx tried to fix that. Wonderful fix, indeed. So those who weren't the bourgeois, they weren't anymore the, so to speak, beneficiaries of capitalism, instead became the beneficiaries of communism, stealing everybody else's money and then patting themselves on the back in their mutual admiration society for the party party leadership who went on to live a life of Riley. The disparity and inequality is inherent to the human condition and the challenges and the toil, the worries and anxieties of making a living have always punctuated the reality of human existence. And we don't find that with any other life form. And we asserted that this is because Hashem loves us and cares about us. That you and I, unless there are pets who are watching along and don't really understand what I'm saying, but all human beings, all of us, are tasked with a sacred and a holy mission. We are all God's partners. We were all placed in this planet for a reason. The very idea of human dignity, the very idea of human rights, the very idea that each and every person should be respected comes from the Torah. Because Torah says that each of us is created in the image of God and each of us is therefore here for a purpose. So if we're here for a purpose and we count and we're important and God made it difficult only because we need these challenges so that we can be all we can be. Why are there some righteous people who have to toil?
shouldn't they be able to find what they need without the unnecessary angst? That's the question. And it's a very strong question. And Rabbeinu Bachaya can't continue with any kind of integrity without addressing this. So whilst the Shara Betochen is not the book of Jewish philosophy or the theology of why do wicked people prosper and why do righteous people suffer, he is at this point required to respond because he illustrates a certain theological perspective that doesn't seem to hold water. So Rabbeinu Bechaya says it's true. It's a fact. There are some people who have to work really, really hard. And then he says, conversely, There are many sinful people, rebellious people. Some of them are really bad people. (laughs) Some of them are bad. Even if you choose not to live with a faith-based perspective, they're bad people because they're bad to others. Even if you think it's not important to be quote-unquote, good to God. Even if you think that religious pursuit isn't of value, I'm pretty sure you believe that the way you treat others is important. Well, then why would people who disregard the rights and the feelings of others, why would people who pillage, steal, abuse in all kinds of different ways, why, why would they prosper? They don't always get arrested. The Jeffrey Epsteins don't always end up in jail. Some of them die in their beds. Quite comfortable, happy and content. God, how? Why would that happen? And you see, the thing is this. In Rabbeinu B'chaya's Weltanschauung, or religious theology, the perspective that he's kind of given us, it should work both ways. The righteous shouldn't have to be challenged to make a living because they don't need those challenges. They don't need those trials and tribulations. The wicked, oh, they should be challenged endlessly. Simply, how else would God prevent them from doing bad things? Here's a perfect opportunity. Don't give them a moment of peace. If a monster like Jeffrey Epstein wouldn't have all his money, how would he abuse young, young women? He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have the ability. He wouldn't have the time. He'd be fighting to just have some sustenance, keep a roof over his head. Nah, but instead, he had more money than he knew what to do with. And willing helpers, who he could give lots of money to. Where's justice? That doesn't seem doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Again, this is all based on a faith-infused perspective that the challenges we have are orchestrated by God with a purpose. So Rabbeinu Bechaya, whilst not dealing with philosophical conundrums of why do wicked people prosper and why do righteous people suffer, has to deal with both ends of this because in his theology of Betochen, in his philosophy, both are true. 
Both have to be true, because if the trials and tribulations come for a purpose, then those who need it should have it, and those who don't need it shouldn't have it. And yet, sometimes we see that those who don't need it have it, and those who need it don't seem to have it at all. So what's going on here? So Rabbeinu Bechaya says, the truth is that it's a very old question. It's not a new question. It's not a question that's prompted by virtue of our, our betochen ideas. This question is a question that's way beyond the frame of our betochen subject. Rabbeinu Bechaya will now quote a series of verses, beginning with a pasuk, a single verse from the prophet Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu, probably one of the most famous verses, well-known expressions of the Jeremiah. <laughs> you know, in English, a Jeremiah means a lot of wailing, what we call in Yiddish, kvetching, because Yirmiyahu, without wanting to, became Hashem's messenger for woeful, woeful ideas, woeful prophecies. Of all the prophets, the one who wanted his job least, one could argue, is found right in Yirmiyoh. Only Moshe Rabbeinu resisted more so. And Hashem says, you think you can't? I knew you before you knew yourself. And Yirmiyoh, he thunders to Hashem, where is, where is the justice? Where's, where's fairness? were followed by a series of verses attributed to the minor prophet Chavakuk. And in the end, we will move into the book of Psalms, where King David himself seems to express similar ideas and conclude with a quote from the last of the prophets, known in English as Malachi or Malachi, near the end of his prophecies. Rabbeinu Bechaya will ultimately point out that none of the prophets answered the questions that they raised. And he'll explain why. And then he'll say, as such, I too will not be able to offer an answer. But I will give you perspective. And with his perspective, we are able to view this conundrum in a different frame, in a different light. Unusually, though, Rabbeinu Bahaya will go on, and we'll study this in our future episodes, he will go on to talk about possibilities, just as examples. So here's why we can't really have an answer, because one size will never fit all. There are many moving pieces. There are many reasons as to why something might be happening, and it doesn't invalidate the general thesis. Having said that, Rabbeinu Bahaya will offer a few four examples not suggesting that in any particular circumstance this is the reason, but here's an example of some possible reasons. I'm going to talk about this in detail. I wanted to give you an overview. And, and I, I want to just say that on the surface, it looks like there's a jumble of verses here. There doesn't seem to be any particular rhyme, reason, or order, and certainly not in the way in the Kahat version here, they didn't highlight in any way, shape, or form as to what's the, what's the, what's the purpose, like where is this going? Just like, just like uh, 
It's like verses thrown at us. Jeremiah, Chavakok, Chavakok, Tilim, Malachi. It's not even in order. I mean, Tilim comes first. So if we have an issue, first we should say Psalms if you want to be historical. And then move on to Jeremiah, then Chavakok, or Chavakok, then Jeremiah, and then Malachi. And I, I mean, I asked a simple question. When I was, to myself, I asked this question when I was preparing this. And by the way, I wish I had more time to prepare because I, I'm always afraid I haven't really figured this out entirely. But at any rate, as they say, it is what it is. Here we are. I got no choice. And I'm going to do the best I can to explain and clarify the words of, of this uh, incredible uh, author. So, so I asked myself the question, wh why, is there, why is there a collection of verses indiscriminately thrown at us here? What does one verse add that the other verse didn't? And I, I think I have a bit of a, an understanding of it, and I'm going to try to explain that to you. But before I go into the details, before I go into the details, there's, there's two, two things that I want to address. And both, I think, are a little bit overarching. The first is that Rabbeinu Bechaya once again seems to be using many words. He, he seems to be ever engaging in hyperbole. It's like if, if he could say something in four words, he'll say it in six. Say it in two, he'll say it in three. So the disrespectful student says, huh, Rabbeinu Bechaya just liked words. But the real student of Torah, who has the appropriate respect for such a millennial giant, knows that uh, there are no extra words here. So let's take it from the top. I want to analyze and share with you explanation on the specific words, tell you why I find it problematic. I'll explain to you why actually I'm wrong and it isn't problematic. And then I'm going to introduce you to a like a big question about this. There seems to be a glaring omission. And after I kind of explain to you why, once again, I'm wrong and there isn't a glaring omission, then we're going to go through these verses, verse by verse. And when this is all finished, hopefully you and I will have a beautiful understanding, a really exquisite, solid appreciation of these timeless words. So let's start from here. We're going to go back to the original words. Rabbeinu B'chaya says, Anachnu Royim, we see, Miktzat. It's very specific. Miktzat Tzadikim. It doesn't say Tzadikim. Miktzat, some. This is the exception, not the rule. It is not reasonable. It is not fair to say, Oh yeah, the righteous people, they always suffer. Don't bother being good. I mean, the, the better you are, the worse life is going to be. It's just not true. There are lots of good people who have their needs provided by Hashem and they're able to immerse themselves in lives that are filled with kindness and generosity and scholarly and spiritual pursuit. But there are exceptions. Every rule has exceptions. But if it's ironclad, there should be no exceptions. If this is factual, and that's how it was presented, there shouldn't be exceptions. But there are exceptions. There are miktas. They won't find 
His damnut means within reach, easily available. But here we see people who don't have that easily available. He doesn't say they starve. He doesn't say they die of deprivation. But he does say it's achar omal and yigia. And the question that I immediately asked myself is omal and yigia. What's the difference between omal and yigia? So you could translate omal as hard work and yigia as toil. And that's actually the way it's translated here in the Kahat version. What's the difference between hard work and toil, pray tell? And if it would have said achare omo or achare yigia, would his point not be made? So lucky for us, the Paslechem, who oftentimes addresses these seeming redundancies, these seeming unnecessary words, addresses this as well. And he says, Amal is not hard work. Because hard work is toil. He says, Amal is tirdas halev. A tirda means a preoccupation. A preoccupation which is overwhelming. A preoccupation which becomes burdensome. A burdensome preoccupation. So, for example, in Hebrew, somebody would say, can you please take care of A, B, or C? I said, oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't get to it. Hayiti tarud. I was preoccupied. I was burdened. I couldn't get to it. I wanted to, but I had tear this. I had these preoccupations. Things which took up a lot of space on my hard drive. So I didn't have room to process other issues or deal with other things. And he proves this. The Paslechem proves this from a verse in Psalms that says, It's a burden in my eyes. It's not hard work in my eyes. It's a burden in my eyes. It's, pre- it's a preoccupation in my eyes. A person could say, in my eyes, this is not an issue. It's not an issue. Hard work is hard work. A preoccupation is a matter of perspective. It depends if it's relevant. It depends if it's important to you. If it doesn't bother you, it's not a preoccupation. So what's Yigiyah then? He says Yigiyah is hard work. In, in, in his Hebrew, he calls it Yigiyah Ta'ivarim, the, the, the burden, the toil, the hard work of the limbs. Maybe in English we call it the heavy lifting. So this bothered me, and I'll tell you why it bothered me. When, when a person says that he's torud, oftentimes he means he's anxious, he has worries, he's preoccupied, he's, he's too worried about the future to be able to deal with the present. But we talked about this person in our previous lesson. We learned that this person is baiteach, this person has perfect trust in Hashem. And as articulated much earlier in the series, Rabbeinu Bahaya defines betochen as living with a sense of tranquility. 
you have a certainty. You know it's going to be good. <laughs> you trust in Hashem. You're relying on Him. It's a blissful kind of reliance. So if I'm relying to the point that I don't have any worries, how could Rabbeinu Bachaya say then, Omol, that this person is faced with this with preoccupations. And I realized that the, the omol or the tirda, the preoccupations here, are not ones of anxiety. They're not about anxiety at all, in fact. But rather, they're about the kind of challenges you might have from others. simply stated, there are toxic work environments. Sometimes you have to be in a workplace where the people around you are profoundly unpleasant. It's not about you being worried where your daily bread will come from. You know that Hashem is going to provide for you, but it doesn't mean that the time you spend with these people is enjoyable. And sometimes it's extraordinarily vexing and bothersome. So if this is a righteous person, an exceptionally righteous person, a person, as we delineated in the previous episode, is the kind of individual who is magbir, he's constantly striving to do better, self-challenging, every single day. A person who has full trust in Hashem, blissfully relies on God. He turns away from anything which is even remotely negative. He yearns for beautiful quality traits. He yearns to be more sensitive, more compassionate, more spiritually minded. He doesn't yearn to have more fun, get more likes, and be more famous like most people do. He yearns for the finer things virtuous things. He isn't brought down in any way by decadence because peace or serenity to him doesn't mean that you waste your time. It means you have time for higher pursuit. He doesn't listen to the Yetzirah. He doesn't allow himself to be persuaded or drawn in. He isn't fooled by the glitter of the material world and its enchanting nature. He sees through all of that. So why would this person then be preoccupied with anxiety? He isn't. He isn't. What's the omel then? Well, the omel is he has to deal with unpleasant people. There are unpleasant circumstances. I have come to realize during my study of Shara Betochen, and I'm so far from perfect at this. I don't even know if I'm good at it yet. But I do know this. I know we're going to keep studying together, and we're going to learn through the entire Shara B'tochen, and we're going to work really hard on implementing this. I, in my field, you in yours, in our own little domains, after we've studied and understood this well, we're going to contemplate and think about it, and we'll be mindful of it. And we're going to get better at it. And we're going to trust Hashem with a greater sense of certainty. And we're going to be able to live more tranquil lives together. Emirates Hashem. That's, that's what this is about. But it doesn't mean you won't have any emotional angst. It doesn't mean you won't have to deal with people who are unpleasant or people who complain, tear strips off you, are unappreciative. 
Do you know how difficult it is to deal with when you give and give and give and then the response you get is one of utter flippance and disrespect? It's not, it's not pleasant. It doesn't come from a lack of trust. It's just burdensome. Why would Hashem do that? Sometimes I, I do things for people and, and the angst I get back in return is just it's demoralizing. And I ask myself the question, why? Why did that happen? And now I have to remind myself, it's nothing to do with this person. Whatever they did, they'll have to answer to Hashem for. But I was clearly, I was destined to receive this kind of frustration, this kind of, this kind of angst. I must have needed it. It's not about trust. It's still frustrating. <laughs> you know, today, I was writing up, I put a little blurb together, right? For, I put it on YouTube and, and on, on, on Facebook, just what the class is going to be about. It takes me a long time because I have to prepare the class and think it through and try to crunch what we're going to learn about into a couple of sentences. So I, had, I worked, I do it on the YouTube thing, and I worked and worked and worked, and by mistake, I hit the wrong arrow and basically it wasn't saved. Instead of going back to undo the last thing I wrote, I lost everything. So an hour's work was lost. <laughs> and that was very frustrating. Now, of course, I'm thinking as I'm like pounding the table, I'm saying, oh, I don't believe this. I'm not going to be ready for today's class. I, I, I wish I had another hour. And now I have an hour less because I have to go rewrite this all. So, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm learning Shara B'tachan, right? So like... What kind of fool can I be? How can I say, oh, well, this, why did this happen to me? And I can't believe it. I'm so angry. And after my myself, what are you, an idiot? You, you know, if it happens, it's because Hashem knows you need this to happen. And perhaps what you wrote wasn't appropriate. And now you're going to rewrite it better. And somehow you're going to be able to do this class anyway. And with God's help, we're going to get through this well, Amir Hashem. It doesn't mean it didn't have angst. I wouldn't be human if I wouldn't have frustration. You put an hour's work into something and then it's lost. And, oh, well, so what? Who cares? I don't know. I care. So why did I need that? Clearly I did. And clearly, without it, I wouldn't be able to achieve what I'm supposed to achieve today. So thank you, Hashem. And it's going to be great, I hope, <laughs> for your sake. And we're going to understand what we're studying today. But it doesn't mean there isn't frustration or angst. In other words, betochen means to live with certainty. Betochen necessarily means that you will be able to live with no anxiety, no fear. Let me repeat that. No anxiety and no fear. But it doesn't mean that you won't have preoccupation or frustration or angst. So here we have a person doesn't have fears, who isn't riddled with anxiety, but he's got frustration and angst. He's got Amul and he's got Jigia. And then, and here it's interesting, Rabbeinu Bechaya switches gears. He doesn't say Miktsas, some of wicked people. Rabim, he says some of the righteous people, but many of the wicked people, horrible people, terrible people, People who would prey on others and abuse them. People who are rebellious against God and harm and hurt other people with impunity. And they get away with it. And they're living a life of Riley. And they don't seem to have to work hard at all to make a living. 
They got the Midas's touch. And that enables them to do all kinds of bad things, too. You're like, God, what's going on here? How, how, how does that work? If what Rabbeinu Bechaya said is true, we have to acknowledge this. Rabbi Me'anshu Averis are Bishalva. Now here, interestingly, Rabbeinu Bechaya uses one word. When it came to the Miktas Tzadikim, some of the Tzadikim, he used the word Omol and Yigia. When it comes to the wicked, of whom he says there are many exceptions, not a few, many exceptions to this rule, he says it's their Bishalva. So the Paslechem says the word Bishalva, which uh, perhaps we can translate as at peace, tranquil. He says that's Hepech Mishneim. That's the opposite of both the hard work, the heavy lifting, and the angst. They have neither heavy lifting nor angst to deal with. They just, they just seem to have no issues. Minor amount of effort, major amount of profit, and they're laughing all the way to the bank. In their wickedness, in their rebellion against Hashem, in their harm and abuse of others. What's going on over here? Chayehem, their lives are betoiv, their lives are good. Their lives are naimim, their lives are pleasant. It's like infuriating. Why are they living pleasant lives? That's not the issue here. <laughs> the issue isn't this. This is if God cares about us and wants good for us, why does he reward the wicked? That's not really the issue here. The issue here is if all of the challenge and travail in making a living is only because we need to be challenged, then why do those who don't need it find it? And why do those who need it exceptionally so, why are they exempt from it? This is, this is the question. Now, in the, in the Art Scroll version, which is another uh, modern rendition of the Shara B'Tochen, also recently published, they note that this is an ancient and a well-known philosophical difficulty of why we sometimes find the righteous person for whom it is bad and the wicked person for whom it is good, which is called Tzadik Viraloi, and Rosha v'toivloi. And it says, take a look in the Gemara, in Mesechet Brachot, on Daf Zayin, on page 7. And of course, if you will look in the Gemara on Daf Zayin, you will see that the Gemara teaches us, as they note here, that Moshe Rabbeinu, Rabban Shalkol Hanavim, the greatest or master of all the prophets, in fact, meant precisely this question when he said, and I, we refer now to Exodus chapter 33, verse 13, make your ways known to me. Well, if it's true that Moshe Rabbeinu asked this question, why didn't Rabbeinu Bahai quote Moshe Rabbeinu? In other words, if this is the age-old question been asked since the time of Moses, why wouldn't you mention it? I'd like to humbly submit that the art school commentary is entirely wrong by linking the two. And I'll tell you why. 
Because the question that Moshe Rabbeinu asked and the question Rabbeinu Bachai deals with now are not one and the same. There is an element to this age-old question that really isn't linked or connected to Rabbeinu Bachai's thesis. There's a reason Rabbeinu Bachai begins with the Navi Yirmiyahu rather than the Navi Moshe Rabbeinu. First and foremost, many of the Rishonim interpret the literal meaning of this verse different than the homily offered in the Gemara and the Talmud. For example, are the words, allow me to know your ways. According to the grandson of Rashi, Rashbam, he says this verse on a literal level is Moshe Rabbeinu saying, can you please show me the way into Israel? Because that's what we're talking about. Now that you've forgiven the Jewish people for the devastating, catastrophic sin of the golden calf, can you please show me like, how the next chapter unfolds? Like how we're going to go in? Just, just show us the way. Like, chart the way forward and we'll follow you. It's very different than this age-old question. Or, for example, Rabbeinu Meyuchas says, please show me how and why you choose to treat all of creation in the manner that you do. Well, like, why are there the haves and the have-nots? Why do some have more or luxury and others barely survive? Rabbeinu Bachaya, in the thesis that he introduced, never said for a moment that the righteous people are going to have luxury in this world. That was never the issue. I mean, the truth is, you could ask, why not? If they're doing what God wants, then they should have all the goodness. If they're not doing what God wants, they should have all the suffering. But that's not his point. His point was very specific. The fact that all life doesn't have to toil to find sustenance, and humanity does. And the question was, why? If humanity's purpose is to serve God, then why'd you make them serve their careers and businesses? Why'd you give them so much preoccupation with occupation? And the answer, he said, is to test us. The answer, he said, is to keep us industrious and busy because the human condition needs this very thing very much. So he said, if there's a person who doesn't need this kind of corrective challenges, then he shouldn't be given them. He didn't talk about Riches, he didn't talk about prosperity. We were very careful to emphasize yesterday that Rabbeinu Bechaya said a person's means, basic means, would be given. Basic means. He said, Lo yariv Hashem nefesh tzadik. He will not starve the soul of the righteous. He'll have bread, he didn't say he'll have butter. He'll have water, he didn't say he'll have wine. He won't starve him. So really, it's not fair to say, to link this to that big question as to why the righteous suffer in this world where the wicked seem to have plenty. That was never the question. The question wasn't about illness. The question wasn't about, about, about pain. It's not fair to link the two. 
when I was, uh, Nachmanides, incidentally, very similar to the Ben speaks about the same kind of things. And he says it's, it's, a, it's an overarching question about how Hashem runs the world as He does. When I was researching this late last night, so I came across a very interesting statement from the Maggid of Mizrich, the successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the Rebbe of the Alter Rebbe, in, and I forgot to bring the Sefer with me this morning, but I did take some notes down. So in Or Torah, which is a book redacted of teachings of the Maggid of Mizrich, over there, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you where it is too, in case you want to look it up. It's in Rimzei Torah ala Godes Chazal, and it's um, section 461, Simen Tav Samar Chalaf. Over there, he interprets this, even the Gemara. The Gemara, which they're quoting here, which seems to say, Tzadik Varele, He says, the question would be, why are certain righteous people challenged with certain lusts and cravings where others aren't? Like, why would God give them a certain lust, an unhealthy craving? Why would God challenge them that way? This is a, it's a profound question. You're not supposed to sin. Okay. Why would you put sin in front of their face? Why do they have sometimes a craving for certain sinful behavior that other people don't have? It doesn't seem fair. So this is not a question of parnasa. This is not a question of livelihood or the ease by which a person can find sustenance or the toil and trial and tribulation that one must undergo in order to get that sustenance. It's a bigger question. The question is, why, did, why didn't God give everybody equal opportunities? You know, we in the Western world like to say, everybody is equal. Sounds great, except that it's just not true. There are short people, and there are tall people. And the tall people, they can have a career in the NBA, and they can play basketball. And the short people can't. There are brilliant people and dim-witted people. The brilliant people can go on to have a career in academia, or discover a cure, or become a great teacher. The dim people... They're not capable. That's not fair. Shouldn't everybody start at exactly the same place, be given exactly the equal opportunity? That's, that's ridiculous. There are people who are beautiful and people who aren't. There are people who are brilliant and people who aren't. There are people who are incredibly talented and people who aren't. Every child should be able to do anything he or she wants. Who are you fooling? Can every, chi- every child in Canada dreams of being a hockey player? They have a joke, and Canadian Jews tell, said that what's a, how do you define a Canadian Jewish boy's bar mitzvah? And, and the joke goes, it's the day he realizes that he has a greater likelihood of owning the hockey team than playing for the hockey team. I mean, there is a, an actuarial reality in the statistics. We are overrepresented in certain areas and underrepresented in other areas. I mean, our ethnic group or background, Jewish peoples. So what? God did not create everybody equal. God gave every one of us different challenges and He gave every one of us a unique set of strengths and possibilities. Some of us were given better parents and some of us worse. 
Some of us were given better spouses, some of us worse. Do you know what the Gemara says? That the spouse you have, the zivug, was ordained from birth? And it's possible sometimes, the Gemara says, for a person to change that and to do better for themselves, but it's not necessarily likely. So it isn't fair to say that everybody gets a fair shake. And this actually is the question of the Gemara. So this is a righteous person. Why didn't God give him a more amenable situation? Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to know that. Like, how does God decide how everybody gets their portion? That's not the question that Rabbeinu Bahaya asks at all. So it sounds like the age-old question, but we're trying to study this text and to be realistic and to be accurate it's not the same question. So, with all due respect to the art school commentary, in my opinion, they make an enormous mistake in that assumption. Anyway, I just thought I would share that. And I think it's, it's, it's important to share it for this reason. You must understand that the question that we're dealing with here is specific, not general. It is. Some of the ideas we will talk about today and in the Be'ezrat Hashem episodes that follow are applicable on a philosophical and theological level, in a much broader area than betochen. But the purpose here is for us to chart a way forward in our betochen, in our trust in Hashem, in our knowledge that that which comes our way, I mean challenges, trials and tribulations, are because we need it. And if we don't need it, we will necessarily remove those challenges. And I want to emphasize that yesterday, we, I suggested, and I think it's correct to say, that this isn't a sum-zero game. It's not all or nothing. It isn't, doesn't mean that either you're wholly righteous, so you have no challenges, or you're an absolute idiot and you have endless challenges. Rather, the more we accept upon ourselves to toil in the spiritual endeavor, the more we will work at trying to come close to Hashem, the more humble we remain, and the more faithful we remain, the less challenges, the less trials and travails we'll have in obtaining what we need. And the more we'll be immersed in material success, and the more that becomes the benchmark of achievement, well, the more we'll be preoccupied with those things. And, and the less we, preoccupation we have with that, and the more preoccupation we have with holiness and spirituality and virtuous things, the more wholesome our life will be. And we can each do a little better. And Hashem will respond in kind. Which brings us now to go through the actual words of Rabbeinu Bachaya. Incidentally, I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm right about what I said earlier with regard to the Omel, the oven, because the Paslechem interprets the words, he says, Bani'imim. Why do we have to write Chayehem Betoiv? It's good, U Bani'imim. He says, because Batoiv Bani'imim refers to two things. Things are pleasant, and he said it also means there's nobody gets in their way, nobody who vexes them. So they have goodness, and they don't have the opposite of pleasantness. They don't have unpleasant people to deal with. Okay, so now, moving right ahead, Noimar, we will say, or respond by saying, this isn't a new question. In fact, this question is as, excuse me, old as the biblical text 
the scriptures themselves. Kvar kodmu hanevim v'hachasidim, the prophets and the supremely pious individuals of our nation have already expressed themselves lachker al zehoinyin to investigate or question this very matter. So Rebbeinu B'chaya says, it's not the first time this question is going to be asked. And it doesn't in any way disprove the veracity of his presentation, of his thesis. The thesis stands. The assumption that we, we have created is rock solid. But what of the challenges? What of, what of the challenge to the thesis? What of the holes being punched due to the exceptions to the rule? So Rebbeinu B'chaya says, that question has already been asked. And he will list the questions asked, but most importantly, he will highlight the fact that in all of the examples of the questions, not once did a prophet draw his or her own conclusion. I mean, think about this. When you ask a question, somebody makes a suggestion, a supposition, be it resolved, such and such is the case, and you ask a question, you say, really, is that true? Well, then why is A, B, and C? And if the questions are strong, then the foundation is shaken. So you'll say, okay, so it's not the way you said it is. But that never happens. The prophets didn't come to their own conclusions, suggesting that, in fact, their faith-based perspective was wrong. Or, furthermore, the prophets don't offer an answer. And this itself is extremely meaningful, as we will see. So we begin with Yermio. We begin with Jeremiah, although the book of Tehillim is written and redacted much, much earlier than Yermio. What does Yermio say? Jeremiah says in chapter 12, right in the beginning, Madua derech reshoyim tzlecha. Why is it that the way of the wicked is successful? So why do the wicked prosper? Derech reshoyim, the way. The road they travel is successful. Why is that? He didn't mention anything about the righteous. Did you notice it? It's interesting. He begins by noting that there is miktas tzaddikim, some righteous who don't prosper or don't have their livelihoods easily or readily available. And then he says, and there's lots of wicked people who do have it easily available. Starts with the righteous and then follows with the wicked. But when he talks about the questions, he starts off, first of all, why are the wicked prospering? Why are the wicked prospering? Which in a certain sense, it, it doesn't mean that Hashem doesn't provide for the righteous, but He shouldn't be providing for the wicked. So why are they prospering? Yermiho asked that question too. Then, from there he goes, he ups the ante, so to speak. 
from Derech Rashoyim Tzlecha, he now moves on, Va'omar Ha'acher, and the other that he refers to here is the minor prophet Chavakuk. Chavakuk said, Oven Va'omel Tabit. I see, I see iniquity. I see, I see uh, things being done wrong. Now he translated, he translated, really, if you look at the verse right, it says, Loma Tareni. Sorry, I skipped. Loma Tareni. Chavakuk says, Why do you show me oven the omel? Iniquity. And, and uh, you know, we have a redundance here again. Pardon me. <laughs> okay. Why do you show me iniquity? Tareni oven. You show me oven is a sin. The omel tabit, and you look upon things being done wrong. You show me sin, and you look upon things being done wrong. And then he says, and you don't respond. And then he says, v'shoid v'chamas lenegdi. There's plunder, and there's violence that are before me. And then he goes on. And the one who bears the quarrel and the strife, he endures, he's fine. All right. So what does Chavakuk say that Yirmiyo didn't say? Think about this. Yirmiyo never said anything about being shown or by God seeing. He just stated a matter of fact. It's a matter of fact. The derech reshoyim, the way of the wicked, seems to prosper. Chavakuk takes it further. You know, you could say, you think that they're prospering. How do you know they're prospering? Has it ever happened to you that you thought somebody leads a charmed life? That the grass is so green in your neighbor's backyard, and then suddenly one day you found that it wasn't nearly as green as you thought? Can you really ask a question based on your observation? How do you know tzlecha? How do you know they're happy? To you, it looks like success. How many successful, famous people have committed suicide in the last 10 years? Quite a few. How happy were they? Oh, I guess not so happy. So, who says that's success? <laughs> I'm just saying. Why do they have and I don't have? Maybe because you don't have, you're a lot better off. I, sh- I shared this with once. It's, it's, was, he said it to me in public. It's a long story, but I, I once had the privilege of having dinner with the famous Hollywood actor John Voight, who's a great friend of the Jewish people and really a very moral, upright person. And, and he said to me something which looks so surprising. He said, I wish I had what you had, he said. He said, I, I, wish, I wish I was married. I wish I could find love. I wish I could find somebody who really cared about me. And I'm looking at this guy who's like world famous and he has endless amounts of money and fame and fortune. And he didn't seem that happy. He found his happiness despite the things he was missing. And pe- people would 
give a, a kidney to have that success. And here's a guy who turns around and says, like, don't be jealous of me. I wish, not that I, God forbid it was, but uh, I wish I could have the things that so many people have. So Yemiyahu's question, well, in fact it is true because, because it seems that derech hashoyim tzlecha. But he doesn't say it seems. So Chavakok says, why would you make it look that way, God? What if the wicked aren't prospering nearly as much as you think they are? Okay. Why make it look that way, God? Why do you show me that sin pays? So Chavakuk is really taking this question to the next level. Yermio's question is a very broad question. Be it resolved, the wicked, their ways prosper. Chavakuk says, and even if you're going to tell me that really they don't prosper that much, he says, why do you show it to me that way? Why do you make it look that way? I mean, God, you, you put us in this world. It's filled with challenges. It's hard enough to do the right thing. Who are we fooling? It doesn't come easily or naturally to anybody. And if it does, more is expected of you. I don't mean to rain on your party. But if you are a generous person, if you're a sensitive person, if you're compassionate by nature, more compassion, more giving is expected of you. Because that's the meaning of avodat Hashem. To dedicate yourself to keep pushing the envelope, to, to serve and to live the most virtuous life possible. So the question becomes, God, you put us in this world. The body's needs are obvious, overwhelmingly apparent. The soul isn't actually seen. Lots of people deny its existence. The Creator's footprints, fingerprints can be seen everywhere, but lots of people also use our life's reality to deny that there's a Creator. So did you have to make it more difficult? Lama Tareni, why would you make it look that way? Say it isn't that way. Why would you make it look that way for? Listen to how the Paslechem puts it. Paslechem says, I'm seeing the iniquity. I'm seeing the bad things happen. That's my job. I'm a Chavakuk's job. He's a, he was the prophet, the rabbi. His job was to, to be the, if you will, the social critic, the prophetic social critic, to come to the nation of Israel and to say to them, what are you doing? Have you forgotten your legacy, your calling? Hashem gave you a Torah. What kind of behavior is this? The mission Hashem imposed upon him was to speak truth to power and to say things that were unpopular. People just wanted to hear they're fantastic. And Chavaka couldn't say that because they weren't. So he had to tell them the truth and try to influence people. And influencing people to be better is not an easy job. So Chavakah says, what are you showing this to me for? Why do my eyes have to see all of the sins and, and the people seem to get away with it? And then he says, I don't even see or know half of it. It's very unlikely to nearly impossible 
that the people I see abusing others are actually busy being nice to people at midnight when nobody sees. Yeah, there's the famous story of the miser who didn't give anybody and secretly he was taking care of people. But Chavakuk doesn't see omission. He sees commission. He sees somebody who's actually stealing from others. He sees somebody who's actually abusing others. He can only imagine what this person does under, under his own, so to speak, private domain where nobody else is looking. What else he gets away with? So he says, you show it to me. And Tabit, Amal Tabit, you, you see even more. Forget what I see. God sees the truth. And if evil is depraved, imagine what God's seeing. So the Paslechem says, Omel. He says, Omel is worse. He says, iniquity, the word Omel, he, he translates it here as mischief. I, I, honestly, I'm not sure why. I don't know why. Mischief sounds like, like trivial. I don't think it's so trivial over here. The, the, the art school renders it evil deeds. I think it's probably more accurate. He says, you're seeing the, 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 the banality of evil. You're seeing this. I'm seeing it. You're seeing it even worse. So what are these people getting away for, with for? And then you, you're seeing, in addition to all this, there's... Riv means, means a strife. And, and uh, shoyd and chamas, pardon me, is robbery. Straight outright abuse and injustice. Chamas, stealing, robbing, before me. And this, these people carry strife and contention. And it's, that's it. They're, they're succeeding. So let's, uh, let's try to understand the, 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 the verbiage here. The Paslachim says that Chamas v'shoid l'negdi, which is this robbery and this injustice, he says l'negdi before me means l'neged enai. These are things that I'm seeing. It's nasa b'rechoivis. This is being perpetrated in the streets, so to speak. And then he says that in addition to all of that, so Hashem sees this ongoing. Ongoing, he says. It's shoyed v'chamas. You're looking at this. Amal tabit, you're seeing it. It's as it's happening. As the Nedab HaKadosh says, this is vayihi, the word vayihi rivumodin. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. The Paslechem says that Rashi tells us, rivumodin is... Um, as a person who seeks strife and contention, disunity and division with other people. And this is like an ongoing thing. Paslechem takes it to a very interesting place. He says that the word riv, which means strife, shares a common root with the term rove kashas, which means a person who shoots with a bow. In other words, that it means to hurl something at others. Just like you, you shoot the arrow with great force, here's a person who doesn't, he's not a passively argumentative individual. 
This, this is a guy who like picks fights. He looks for trouble. He's constantly throwing out barbs and, and, in, and engaging with others in a negative way. Paslechem calls it divrei kintur. These are, these are words meant to pierce, meant to vex, meant to frustrate, meant to hurt. People of strife say things to, 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 to harm and to hurt and to shame and to embarrass and to, and to cause divisiveness. They, they sow disunity with their words. And they get away with it. And he says, it's not only it's rivets, it's modern. What's modern? He says modern means contention, to vie with one another. And everybody thinks they're right. Everybody defends themselves. Like din, like law. Like it's, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in order. Each one has their own amatla otis, their own excuses. Each one has their own proof, their rayas, lahatstik, to justify what they do. So people are causing strife and sowing disunity and justifying what they do. Does that sound familiar? You've never seen anybody like this? And they get away with it. And the Prophet's saying, Rabbeinu Shalilim, what is going on over here? The Neder Bar-Kedish gives us a paradigm of who could this be? Well, like what kind of a, spell it out for me. Could you give me an example, a historic example? He says, yeah. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was an evil monarch who was responsible for murder and mayhem in extraordinary levels. A cruel, capricious, harsh, selfish, mean-spirited, brutal dictator. Human lives meant nothing to him. Human suffering was a joke to him. <laughs> and he lived happily ever after. So Chavakuk says, what's going on here? This doesn't add up. And then Chavakuk says, and here Rabbeinu Bechaya takes us from verse 4 of the first chapter of his prophecies and Skips forward to verse 13. Pardon me. He goes from, from verse 3, he goes to verse 4. He says, Ki rosha And here he ups the ante. It's not just quoting verses in order. Rosha machter satzadik, the Marpel and Nefer says, I'm sorry, the, the Paslechem says that the word machtir, which by the way shares a common root with the word keter, which means a crown, the crown encompasses the head. He says it's something that's hakaf of a sivuv. It's something that like its, its orbit encompasses. And he brings a number of examples from the, from the prophets, from the scriptures to prove this. And he says you're talking about a person who is entrapping. He is entrapping the righteous. The wicked entraps the righteous. Encircles them and entraps them. And they succeed. What's going on over here? The Omar, and then Chavaka goes on to say, Tachrish bivala rasha tzadik mimenu. And then you're silent, God, he says, when the wicked man swallows up somebody who's more righteous than him. 
he's, he's upping the ante here. The first thing was, it seems like the w- wicked are prospering. Eh, it seems like. He says, no, it seems like. That's important because what seems like, that's we, we can only go by what we see. So God, what are you showing us? You're showing us that we see bad things happening in the street and the people get away with it. You see even worse. It doesn't make a difference. There's people who are sowing strife and disunity. They're causing harm in the society that they live. They're bringing about so much bad blood and evil things to unfold. And God doesn't say anything. The righteous entrap are being entrapped by the wicked. And then, specifically, we now move into a showdown between the righteous and the wicked. So they're actually locking horns. And the righteous loses. He's swallowed by the wicked. You understand how the question keeps growing? We start with Yermio, but Chavakuk's question is far more profound, far more disturbing. He's pointing out much more disturbing things than just, well, this prosperity of the wicked is frustrating. It doesn't seem to jibe with the theology of Torah that goodness pays and crime doesn't. He says, this, this is just like profoundly disturbing, God. What's going on here? And now from this he moves to Tillim. And another prophet said, it doesn't matter. He's not talking about the names of the prophets here. It doesn't matter. These are, these are things that are found in the scripture. And another says, He's so regarding the success of those who are wicked, David Melech says, Hine behold, these are the wicked, Eile Rishoyim, and yet, Vishal Ve'olam, and yet, they're always tranquil. Word Olam here doesn't mean space or place, it means forever. Like we say, Le'olam, forever. They're always tranquil. And, he's Guchoyl. They have attained, they have reached tremendous valor is a euphemism for wealth. And he says, taking it now, driving his point forward, ach rik zikiti levavi. And he says, now moving on from the prosperity of the wicked and the tranquility that they experience, he moves into the suffering of the righteous. And he says, in vain, rik zikisi levavi, in vain I purified my heart. My heart had within it selfishness, jealousies, anger. I purified my heart from these things. And not only I purified my heart, but furthermore, I washed my hands in cleanliness. So you'd say, wow, I did all the good things. I changed the way I feel. I changed the way I act. I made sure that everything is clean without any kind of dross, nothing of, of in, in, no inappropriateness. As the Paslechem points out, he says, up until this point, we only were speaking about the difference between the wicked and the righteous. Here, David Melech goes on to emphasize, and he says, and here's a person who's done good things. I did all these things, in thought and in deed, because a person could say, well, you, you behave nicely, but look at your heart. You are rotten in the heart. And your David HaMelech, more is expected of you. He says, I cleanse my heart. 
And I wasn't just a good hidden heart. I'm like, oh, I'm good. I have a good heart. No, he says, I did good things. It cleansed my hands. Hands are euphemism for action. And, and yet, it's all, it's all in vain. As the Neda Bakaydish says, We're doing mitzvahs. There's no recompense. Doesn't, doesn't seem to be generating anything good. I'm thinking with truth, with integrity, with faith. And I have nothing to show for it. God doesn't seem to care. Erchatz bin Akoyin Kapi says the Nedabar Kedish means, if I didn't do things which are compromised, which are, which are dirty, you know, like a dirty action. People behave, you know, people say it's dirty money, it's corrupt. It came at somebody else's expense. Nothing, nothing corrupt there. Why do you say hands? He says, most things people do with their hands. I mean, you could bounce a ball with your head if you're playing soccer too, but most of the time people do things with their hands. So the hands become a euphemism for doing. The Harimel says, I cleansed all these things. And yet, despite the fact that I did all these things, despite the fact that I did all of these things, which you would think would lead me to be able to experience Hashem's goodness, and despite it all, I was afflicted all day. Afflicted all day. And my rebuke comes every morning. <laughs> what does this mean? Why does he use the term afflicted? He says negua. So this is really interesting. The Paslechem says that the word nega in the scriptural prose refers to lesions which are only for appearance's sake. The idea of a tzarat which is a biblical term for a paranormal condition of a skin discoloration that didn't cause any pain and didn't actually comprise contagium. But it was evident. And it caused loneliness. And people stay away. It disfigured. It made one hideous and ugly. And people would stay away. So he says, this is precisely what we're talking about. Hanega says the paslechem, einenu dover hametzairu machiv kochav. doesn't really hurt or have that much pain associated with it. But the main thing is, it makes you repugnant in the eyes of others. Nimas believe habrias. People find disgusted by you. People run away from you. As it says about the person who has tzarat, who was called a nagua, it says badad yeshev. He's alone. Nobody likes to be alone. Nobody likes to feel isolated. We all want to be popular. We all want to be loved. We all want to be cared about. We all want to have camaraderie. We all want to be in an environment of friendship, acceptance. And yet, David Amalek says, despite the fact that I've worked so hard on purging my heart and my deeds, I feel so alone. I feel so abandoned and isolated, spurned and disdained by others. And this is obvious to everybody, he says. The nikoyan, the cleanliness of my actions, he says. What do I get for it? I'm getting rebuked. Nobody hears the rebuke. Everybody sees it. Says Paslechem. The rebuke here is not a lecture that he gets from God. Mi asreni 
be a sudan le'eni koladim. My thoughts, my innermost meditations, nobody even knows about. And yet I don't find myself any more accepted or popular. And not in the, if you will, lap of friendship. So I'm isolated. And furthermore, what do people see? They see a person tries to come close to Hashem and he suffers. This sounds so unfair. It just doesn't seem to make sense. So why is it called only in the morning? David Melech only suffered in mornings. He had morning sickness. He was pregnant. What does it mean? What does it mean morning? He says, I'm, I, I suffer in the mornings. He says, suffer in the mornings is a euphemism. At night, it's dark. Dark means you can't see. But in the morning, everybody sees. The first time this expression is used is when Moshe Rabbeinu faces off with Korach. He says, Boker, we'll see in the morning. Meaning it'll be open, overt, obvious. Everybody sees it, David Hamel says. Everybody sees I'm toiling, I'm doing the right thing. I'm, 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 I'm running a country without any corruption. And, and just, I just suffer. Everything, everything isn't going the way I would hope it to be. So people point the fingers, so look at that. All this goodness doesn't seem to be paying off anymore. I know what some of you are thinking. There was a story with David Melch. This is long afterwards. And David Melch does tshuva publicly. And does all kinds of extraordinary things. No monarch would do what he did. And yet, David Melch suffers so much. What's the message? You be good, you suffer. So, so what is this? David Melech is it's an anguished cry to God from, from a great chassid, from a person of tremendous piety. The Neder Bakredish says that the word labkarim, which is plural, he says it's like, it's like tamid, mibiker labiker, as they say, from morning to morning. It just seems to get worse from day to day sometimes. There's, there's, a, there's like a, a, a logic to this. You see how it's going like from one gets more, gets worse, gets worse, that the questions are getting stronger and stronger. And Rabbeinu Bahaya finishes. Va'omar, Acher, and another said, and he said this, Alpi Anshe Dere. He related about the people of his generation. He said, like, what do you think? The people don't notice? Only the prophet knows this? He says, Malachi, near the end of his short book, in the 15th verse of the third chapter, Malachi says, Gam bochanu elikim vayimaleitu. They are, so to speak, says Malachi, the people of his generation. They're complaining. They're saying they've been tested by God and they escaped. So these people who did all kinds of wicked things, they got away with it. They got away with murder. The Pasuk talks about wicked people to show him, evildoers, and says they built things up, they got away with it. 
So Ben Abchai says this question is found everywhere. From the prosperity of the wicked to the depravity and suffering of the righteous. Remember, that wasn't really the question, but ultimately it dovetails into the original question of Rabbeinu Bahaya. If what he said is true, why doesn't it actually play itself out that way? So Rabbeinu Bahaya notes something incredibly profound. Yet, while the prophets all thundered to Hashem, but they all raised their voice and, and they made this query. They said, Rabbeinu Shalalam, what is going on here? It doesn't seem to fit the thesis, the theology, the philosophy, the plain arithmetic of righteousness that's supposed to lead to goodness. It doesn't, doesn't work. So, yet, despite the fact that the prophets did this, they left behind any answers. They didn't offer any answers. Hey, why are you asking questions if you have no answer? <laughs> it's like, better don't ask the question. Why didn't they ask the question? Why did they ask the question if they weren't planning to, give, to offer us an answer? Do you think, the prophets wanted to weaken our faith? If they had questions, if they had doubts, why would they share it? To achieve what? The Navi's goal was to galvanize the people to serve Hashem with greater fervor, with greater commitment, with greater, greater devotion and dedication. That was what the prophet was all about. Why then raise these questions? Why share these questions? Why are they shared for posterity? Rabbeinu Bechaya offers us incredible insight. He says the Navi pointedly asked the question and didn't give an answer. Why? He says, because the reasons, so to speak, that a particular righteous person is being tested, and all of the wicked people who are experiencing shame, who are experiencing goodness in this world, are all zulas ilas ha'acher. It's all different for each one. In other words, there isn't one size fits all. It's not like there's one guiding principle which answers all these questions. That's not the case. Because if there was one guiding principle, then the prophet would have said, you have a question? Here's the answer. The prophet never said that. Why not? Because this question doesn't have one answer. There isn't a one-size-fits-all. Every situation is different. Lochein heiralzeh. Therefore, what they did say, it's commented on very general terms. What's the general terms? Here, Rabbeinu Bachai refers to a verse in Parshas Nitzavim, the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 28. It says, Hanistores the mysteries, they belong to God. That which is overt, that we can discuss. That's Lanu Ulvaneo. That's for us and not for our generations. I just want to share with you the commentary of one of the, the great Rishonim who wrote a, a, a compilation called Ma'oir Ha'afela. He says like this This verse is 
שהוא יודע הסודות הנסתרות. God knows the real secrets. He knows הדברים האמיתיים, the real truth. But he knows it in a manner כפי שאין אדם יוכל להסיק, as is unfathomable. It is impossible for a person to know this. The human mind in its limited state can never reach the origin, the foundation of all that exists and happens. Let's be honest. It's impossible for us to understand because in truth there are trillions of moving pieces and they're all related to each other. Only God can see the full truth. Only God can see the whole picture. We see a few pixels of a picture that has trillions and trillions of pixels. We get to see a few pixels. A tiny element, a tiny, tiny portion. You'll never see the whole picture. Hashem is called Mechuyev HaMetzias. He said God is the cause for existence. How then could an existence that's caused be able to see things as does the cause for existence? He is Mechuyev HaMetzias. He is the cause of everything. And as the cause of everything, who God knows that which is secret to us as well as revealed to us, but we can't. In other words, it is unknowable, it is unfathomable, it is impossible for us to be able to in any way, shape or form have the answer. So why ask the question? Because if you don't ask the question, you say, well, well, why didn't they ask this question, huh? Well, the answer is they did ask this question. And the answer is it's impossible for us to know. Had the prophets not asked the question, then some, you'll forgive me, wise guy or smarty pants comes along and says, oh, well, if that's true, then why A, B, C, and D? And until I get an answer, I'm not putting on film, Rabbi. But that's a flawed premise because it pre-assumes that it's actually possible for us to know the answer. The prophets wanted to tell us the question is a question. We're not ignoring it. But some things will remain a question forever to us. Some things are simply not within the purview of our limited human ability. We'll never know the answer. We can't. If we could, we'd be God. There's a famous question that was once asked to the Alter Rebbe. They said to the Alter Rebbe, so if you were God, how would you do things? The Alter Rebbe says, if I was God, I would do it exactly as God did it. So they said, what? You, you're in agreement with this sick child and with this unfortunate orphan and with this terrible disaster and tragedy and that catastrophe? Dr. Rebbe says, me? No, of course not. I, 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 I have terrible pain from all of this. It, it frustrates me, causes me angst. But you just said you would do exactly what God did. Of course, said the Rebbe. If I was God, I would do what God did because God is perfect. We cannot understand it. Let me tell you something very important, my friends. I've heard faith leaders from various faith systems point fingers at people who suffer and say foolish things like, this one suffers from this reason and that one because of this. What kind of stupidity is that? What kind of inhumane attitude is that? 
Who asked you to gloss over human suffering? Who asked you to make it okay when somebody else is having pain? Hashem didn't ask you to do that. Your job, my job, is to plead with Hashem and to try and help somebody else. You know, if we would know why somebody suffered, we wouldn't have any compassion. And that would make us inhumane. God knows why everything happens and yet is filled with compassion for us. That's not a human quality or possibility. So we have questions. We struggle with our questions. But we don't draw conclusions because we know there's always more than meets the eye. And there are different reasons as to why things happen. Things that we can never understand. And the wise person here, of course, Rabbeinu Chaya refers to King Solomon, who's called the wisest of people. The wisest of people. Shlomo HaMelech said, Im Oshek Rosh, the Gazel Mishpot. Shlomo HaMelech said, in a similar vein, if you see oppression of the poor, if you see suppression of justice, if you see Tire Bamdina, if you see the suppression of justice and rights in the state, he said, Altisma al Do not wonder over these facts. Do not ponder the matter. As if to say, how could God allow such a thing to be? What should you say? What you should say is, what can I do about it? And of course, do something about it, if you can. Va'omar, and going back to Deuteronomy, in Parshas Hazinu, in the 32nd chapter, in the 4th verse, we say, Hatsur tomim po'olei, the deeds of our rock, a euphemism for Hashem, who is tomim, who is perfect. Tomim po'olei, his deeds his deeds are perfect. Hatsur Tomim, you can read this as the perfect rock, or Hatsur Tomim Pa'olei. Either way you can read it. The rock, his work, perfect is his work. I don't know why in the Kahas they chose to translate it, the rock as perfect, or the deeds of the rock are perfect. Kichol Drochav Mishpat, all of Hashem's ways are justice. Ah, it doesn't look like that to us. That's because we can't understand. But it doesn't allow us to have a lack of faith. And, and if it does, that's simply foolish. Because you're passing judgment without knowing the facts, without seeing the whole picture. Here's an illustration, just an example. A person I knew fairly well suddenly passed yesterday. He wasn't 65. Of all the people I know in that age bracket, he was probably in the best of health. He looked healthy. He was robust. He would work out regularly. I think he ate healthy as well. He didn't smoke. He didn't drink. Tragically, he passed away suddenly. So can you draw the conclusion then, aha, uh -huh. here's a guy who didn't drink, 
didn't smoke, worked out almost every single day, ate healthy, and he died at 64. Aha! You see? Eating healthy is bad for you. It doesn't actually contribute to good health. It's bad not to smoke. Smoke away. It's bad not to drink. Drink away. Take narcotics. Do all kinds of things. Fill your bodies with toxins. Look at, look at this guy. Didn't work for him. <laughs> it's the dumbest thing to say. We have scientific proof that eating healthy is good for you. It's common sense. Being fit and, and being in good shape, it's good for you. It's common sense. Not smoking and, and not drinking excessively, these things all contribute to longevity. And if there is a person who did all these things and he didn't experience longevity, it doesn't disprove the fact that these things are actually good for you. So what happened? Well, there was something genetic. It was a predisposition. It's something that nobody realized, nobody knew. It couldn't have been prevented. Maybe if this person hadn't been doing all those things, he would have died 10 years earlier. We may never know. My point is that that's just one example of a person who might die young, and it doesn't mean that the healthy regimen he was following isn't healthy. Rabbeinu Bachaya says the thesis is a thesis. It's a faith fact that Hashem challenges us not because He hates us, not because He torments us or tortures us. Hashem loves us, cares for us, and wants the best for us. If we face trials and tribulations, if we face challenges, it's to make us better. So then why would somebody who doesn't need those challenges have them? Rabbeinu Bahaya says, we may never know. It doesn't disprove the thesis, though. And that's why he introduces us to the age-old questions. That's why he introduces us to the questions of the prophets to illustrate the answer by virtue of the fact that they didn't answer. The thesis is a thesis, and it is true. The theology is our theology. These are our faith facts. And at the same time, for as much as we understand the ways of Hashem, there is so much that is beyond the purview of our imagination. Things which we simply can't fathom. So the bottom line is, in the same way that you know it's a good idea to eat healthy foods and to be fit and take care of yourself, because the life Hashem gave you is yours and you must guard it and take precautions to be healthy. In the same way, you must know that Hashem loves you and cares for you. The more you will devote yourself to spiritual pursuit, the less angst or disturbances you'll have from other things and Hashem will provide for us. And we have to trust in Hashem. And is there any guarantee of anything ever? No, there actually isn't because there's a bigger picture. But we have to work with the variables we have and utilize the opportunities that Hashem gives us. Thanks so much for joining today. We'll be continuing in Mirz Hashem and I hope 
you'll continue to come. Be'ezrat Hashem, we will continue to address these very important questions as we try to learn how to build our trust and live with certainty. With betachen and Hashem Yisbarach, if you liked the class or found it uplifting, please take a moment to like and share. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. God bless you all. And have a wonderful day. Thank you, Inkultuf.